listening to The Dog Pod with your host, Han Vance in Atlanta, Georgia. What a great day to be in Atlanta and be a Georgia Bulldog. I've got my co-host and executive producer with me, Sam Casaccio out of Manhattan, New York City. That's Sam Casaccio of GPK Studios. All right, Han. So I was a little worried about those Bulldogs, but damn, did they deliver. Demolished Auburn, Sam. Demolished. 27 to 6. It was 24-3 at halftime when we basically ran out the clock. Run you DU. That was it. Yep, RBU is back, baby, in full glamour and effect. It wasn't that feature guy like we thought it might be with Zeus or somebody breaking out or Macintosh breaking out. It was all the guys, folks. The whole stable of runners on full display. From Dejon Edwards to my California guy, Milton getting in there. Kenny McIntosh getting touches, Cook making plays, Zeus looking dominant right out of the gate, and then not having to have to do much in the second half. Yeah, I mean, Zeus wasn't flashy, but Zamir White really did kind of get those yards at what, I mean, as a crew, they got about seven yards per carry against a good Auburn team. I mean, I think that there's, uh, you know, after, in context, we can look at week two and see that Kentucky losing to Ole Miss wasn't the team we thought they might be when they were ranked to start the year and Arkansas getting a win against a ranked Mississippi state who just beat LSU the week before, probably a better opponent than we thought. But at the end of the day, uh, Georgia got it done. And I, and I, uh, you know, got to eat some crow, take my lumps and, and just, you know, admit that I was a little nervous time for the porridge probably shouldn't have been, Shouldn't have been nervous because it was all Georgia that night. And again, let's sing a little praise. Stetson Bennett the fourth, the guy, the Georgia guy, let him. I mean, it it was a lot of the run game in terms of the game plan, but every time he had to deliver, he delivered on time and in a pretty basket. Uh, Let me put it this way. I would love to be the little man on campus known as four right now, getting a little heat in class, I bet. Stetson, the fourth baby, special delivery. You've got mail. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful thing to see. I'm happy for that guy. It's the kind of story you like in Georgia in, in college football to have a walk on. You know, we were we were talking before the show about how much he kind of reminds us of of Baker Mayfield going into yeah. Oklahoma. Obviously, Baker Mayfield's a Heisman and former walk on himself though. He walked on at Texas Tech. He's a walk on himself. And I got to say, looking at the rest of the SEC, I'm not sure I like another quarterback better right now than uh, than, than Mr. Bennett the fourth. I, I, I'll say that. I still favor Trask a little bit personally at Florida. He's a real light him up thrower. I like the Georgia team better. And I like the intangibles of the mailman like off the charts right now. Um, now, keep in mind, Baker was a walk-on at Texas Tech. Wound up at Oklahoma and won the Heisman. He's six foot. He's my size and from where I'm from. He's from Austin, Texas. Six foot, 200 pounds. Stetson's a little smaller guy than us, but he's in that same size range. He's undersized for a quarterback, but he's a great little athlete. He's a big time winner. You can just see it. It's written all over the kid's face. He's a winner. He's accurate, man. And more athletic than people, I think, even still are giving him credit for. The rollouts, the picking up first downs with the legs. 
I mean, he can really do it all. The two-point conversion where he hit the pylon that time at Arkansas was nice. Yeah, I mean... He's also looking to throw off the run, which is a dangerous proposition for a defense at any time, especially when you've got the type of athletes creeping on down the field like Kiaris Jackson at Georgia. They choke up, they get burned, and Stetson really delivered over and over again. To the key car, Sam, in the classic city. Vroom, vroom! Kiaris Jackson had a huge game, had a, so many big third-down conversions. So many. I mean, we, we, we knew that um, Pickens was going to have have his fill moment at least or yeah his, he's really getting a lot of coverage is what he's getting he's drawing a lot of the heat off Kiaris is the breakout guy I was pining for on the field at UGA I anticipated a runner and got instead a dominant receiving performance um, Pickens still had his moment in the sun when he got single coverage caught that nice touchdown in the end zone and did the kind of strange pose but it was a great uh, one play for Pickens drawing a lot of the heat Kiaris was there Play in and play out. Big moment in, big moment out. With a diversity of very athletic maneuvers. It was very impressive. And I will say, it is one thing to have a great performance, but to have the head coach in week two not only sing the praises of your performance, but to point out what a leader Kieris is and to say that he not only is a leader, he represents the team of what Georgia is supposed to be about, worked unbelievably hard, and that he couldn't be happier to see that translate on the field you know you have a special player, that this is not going to be a one-week thing. This guy is going to be a big part of the offense moving forward. And uh, I'm a, it's another story you love to see. Sure, and historically you don't hear that about receivers at Georgia, especially not the guy that wasn't expected to be the main guy. Here we go, Georgia, old-time, big-time, 1785 versus Tennessee, two founding members of the SEC. When you're talking about ranking rivals, traditional rivals, Auburn and Georgia, the Deep South's oldest rivalry, used to be the closest rivalry in sport. It was all knotted up at 55, 55, and 8. Point differential almost the same. Georgia continued pressing the, the gas. Georgia continued applying the pressure. And Auburn snapped. They're done. We're done with Auburn. We're on to Tennessee. Tennessee's on an eight-game winning streak, longest winning streak in the SEC. Ranked number 12 in one poll, 14 in the other. They have a lot of momentum right now. This is the 50th meeting between these two flagship institutions of neighboring proud states, Georgia and Tennessee. This is a big game. It's a huge game, and it is so fun. It is fun. It is so fun to get to participate in this, in the SEC football. To These have rivalries. These rivalries. You know, Kirby was asked about how he feels about playing Tennessee at this point. And another thing that you don't normally hear a coach say, and, and, and he didn't have any problem saying, Tennessee is better than Auburn is at this point in the season. And it starts with the, the O-line and the D-line of, of that Tennessee team. Sure. Cade Mays and company. Well, I mean, look at, like I said, Auburn was young on the defensive line and also had lost four or five offensive starters. Georgia, meanwhile, lost four or five offensive line starters too. But Georgia was a little more experienced with Jordan Davis and company on the defensive line than Georgia was on either, and then Auburn was on either line. And that really matters. Right. Um, and this Georgia-Tennessee rivalry – we have a one-game lead. What I was kind of alluding to with that used to be the closest is the closest series in the SEC right now is actually Georgia and Tennessee. Not a historic rival of Georgia's, a rival since the start of, a regular rival anyway, since the start of SEC East divisional play. Um, these two haven't met the type of times that a Florida, a Tech, and Auburn have 
lace them up between the hedges and face Georgia. Right. And and normally you associate Tennessee's rivalry with with Florida, but they're they're coming in to to play the Bulldogs and it seems to shape up to be the biggest game right now. Biggest game this week. Yeah. Definitely the biggest game for Tennessee in a long time. Kirby has lost once each to all of our predominant historic rivals. See, Alabama and, and LSU aren't predominant historic rivals, but um, he's lost to South Carolina once, Florida once, Tennessee once, Tech once, Auburn once. He lost to Tennessee his first year. That was the infamous Dobbs Nail boot game. And the first time I hosted an Athens legacy party in Athens. Um, absolutely insane. I We thought Georgia had won the game, Sam. On the biggest pass, greatest moment of Jacob Eason's career at Georgia, long bomb he throws to Ridley. So much social media attack is going out. All the technology shuts down on the quadrant of Athens where I was in, hosting the Athens Legacy Party first annual at Max Canada's. We didn't know whether Georgia had won or not. I actually sprinted all the way up the block to where I thought some power was on to find out if Georgia won for sure because I knew that a comeback could have happened even though it was a long shot. I was told Georgia did one. Sprinted all the way back and told the entire party that dogs did in fact win, celebrated some more, left, walked through the alley, got my heart broken and almost jumped off a bridge. <laughs> you know what? It's funny you bring that up because I was watching that game. My Huskers were playing Illinois. I'm standing in a bar and I couldn't believe it. It was an insane game. Unbelievable. Yes, it was. Well, I will bring up again um, to kind of continue the uh, the incestuous narrative of the coaches in the SEC. The uh, offensive coordinator, Jim Chaney, and offensive line coach, Will sure. Friend, also have Georgia ties, Arkansas ties. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's just another band of well, southern cousins here swapping spit. Yeehaw, Sam. What? Let me tell you about that, boy. Jim Cheney was the offensive coordinator at Georgia. Prior to that, he was the offensive coordinator at Arkansas under Brett Bielema. His line coach was Sam Pittman, the current head coach at Arkansas. They were at Arkansas together. Kirby imported them boys on the east and brought them over for a hog dog rodeo. We started running the ball the way Arkansas had been at the time. We got a true power running game. The That's where we got all those offensive linemen. Yeah. So Sam Pittman is the boss. He's off at Arkansas Pit Boss. Um doing great he let stayed a year longer than cheney did two years ago tennessee came a calling and phil formal really likes cheney they're similar and athletic director phil fulmer lured sam Pittman, excuse me jim cheney to come to be take a lateral position as you mentioned off mic to be the offensive coordinator at the university of tennessee for a lot more money and coach for jeremy pruitt the former defensive coordinator who come up with kirby won national championships at Bama and then at Florida State as a defensive coordinator took a lateral move to defensive coordinate at Georgia under Kirby excuse me under Rick at the very end of the Rick era and never quite got there to the promised land but here these guys go again he was back in Bama beating us recently and then he became the head coach at uh, Tennessee I mean talk about a close-knit community of football people, Sam. Yep, and Kirby didn't fail to touch on that. Uh, he brought up Cheney and Friend as as kind of the, the the focal point of of what he is in terms of game plan dealing with and dealing with uh, this Tennessee Volunteer uh, offense. And the the offensive line is it seems to be the biggest concern. He he mentioned that Friend is a good O line, uh, has about five guys returning with experience 
and that Jim Chaney, an offensive coordinator, obviously Loves familiar with football. the league, yep. and uh, he also is a good own line coach in his own right. So that loves power football. That's a great matchup between what is right. a dominant and was dominant against the Auburn Tigers uh, defensive front for oh of the my. Georgia Bulldogs matching up against this defense. O-line um, of, of the Volunteers. Georgia's defense is that nasty. I have a feeling we're going to be doing that to folks. Not every game, but we're going to be doing that to folks. We did it a lot last year, holding teams to 12.6 average. One team got over 18 on us, y'all. It only happened once. Mm. So this is a continuing trend. We're even better this year. We're giving up 8.0 points per game, and we've actually scored 8.0 points which we all scored in the first game. Um, so Kirby's highlighting that as the big matchup. What do you think of that matchup? The Tennessee O-line versus the Georgia defensive line. And what are the matchups you might be thinking that didn't get touched upon in that press conference? Tennessee has gone back to Phil Fulmer brand football, big orange machine football, which is running the ball, blocking guys. Breaking tackles are the key to it. Short passing plays in which there's a lot of yak, yard after catch for the receivers. The predominant... Um, legacy of Tennessee at receiver is based on guys that can not only catch the ball, but make plays with the ball. And that really breaks your will as a defense when previously and historically out on that flat on those Sanford Stadium nights on Rocky Top with that chill in the air coming off the river. What I saw was a lot of Tennessee guys breaking tackles and getting first downs. And as the game wore on, they generally did it more and more and more. So for us to overcome Tennessee, to beat Tennessee, compete with Tennessee, we've had to learn to tackle. Those type of plays start up front with the offensive line. Coach Fulmer, the athletic director, is the great ball and the offensive line guy. This team is built like an old-style Tennessee team. Jeremy Pruitt is a defensive coach and fundamental guy. Jim Chaney led the SEC in rushing offense like almost every year he was offensive coordinator before he came to Tennessee. So this is a running football team. This is a smash-you-in-the-mouth team. I don't think they're going to be able to hit Georgia in the mouth, though. We're too damn nasty. Well, I, I, I think it, it deserves to be said. I think that, 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 that there's probably not a better team I'm looking at right now that could match up against anybody defensively. Georgia is playing some the best defensive football, maybe in the the whole SEC, maybe in the whole country. I mean, certainly the numbers say that. Statistically, we're leading the country in defense. So, I mean, we are the, we're, we're, we're leading in scoring defense again. I think we're number one in total defense. I'm not 100% sure, but we're definitely number one in scoring defense. And if you don't let the other team score, it's just hard to lose football games. I don't anticipate us keeping Tennessee as low as they did. I didn't anticipate us keeping Auburn as they did, which I was on record saying they'd get around 17, 20 points. Um, my daughter at halftime said Auburn's not scoring 10, more than 10 points in this game. I didn't agree, and she was right. I was wrong. Um, I think that we're going to give up some plays at some point. And obviously, Bama is looming. I don't like that this is the definition of a trap game where you're coming off a home win in a rivalry. Everyone's gloating right. and riding high. And the next game is a daunting white whale who you're seeking, who some of your energy has to be grabbing towards already, who uh, is number two in the country and looks like the 92 Cowboys right now. Right. So I think the important thing is I think that the, the big matchup, as, as Kirby's pointed out, is going to be their O-line versus your defense. I mean, we have to talk about how this offense, which Kirby also sure. brought up, has as much as, as dominant as they looked behind the direction of the mailman – the run game that was averaging seven yards a carry. They, I, I think it's important to mention 
that they were up by so much at halftime and were running the Correct. ball so well. I mean, you're churning clock here, and particularly with the way the defense right. is playing. But I think there's th- right. it's important to remember, even with a dom- dominant performance in the Deep South's oldest rivalry against a top-10 team, this is a young offense that can get better and is getting better every week. And as we pointed out, since they shifted their O-line, it's not just about the shift to the mailman. They made adjustments on their O-line, and then all of a sudden we're run, be able to run the ball in the second half against a good Arkansas team, against a top-10 Auburn team, and they're going to keep getting better. So how do you think, though, this growing offense that looked dominant against the Tigers is going to fare against a Tennessee defense? Uh, I think that we're going to be okay in that matchup. I do think that the uh, Tennessee has a chance to score some points. Um, the, when you have a lot of momentum going from winning, winning begats winning, losing begats losing, and it's just hard to lose when you've been winning a lot of games. You're not going off easy. You're not going out quietly into the night. So I think Tennessee thinks they're coming to win this football game on Saturday. Of course. It won't be Sanford Stadium at full throat, which is advantage Tennessee. Sure, it's a home game, and that's advantage Georgia. But this isn't a traditional Sanford Stadium when the Vols come to town, which is, let me tell you, Sam, one of the biggest social events of any calendar year in the Deep South. When Tennessee is in Atlanta, is in Athens, it's nuts, and it's wild. College game day might be there. All of the cousins people, come to people town. People are painting their faces. The, the family yeah. reunion is, is in full swing when the volunteers come to Athens. They travel so well. They they really show up anywhere. They brought like 40,000 to UCLA once. I mean, they're just amazing. And they really expect to win and expect to do well. They've won 13 SEC championships. Georgia's won 13 SEC championships. It's so exciting. So that is on the line. So at the end of the day, bottom line, Han, we got to just give the takes. What is going to happen here on uh, on Saturday? Are the Bulldogs coming away with this? Where it might be a close game, but I think Georgia's going to win by about 10. Um, I'm taking Georgia by about eight to 10 points. Um, could be four. I do think Georgia's going to win this football game. Kirby's the right type of coach to not let there be a hiccup. When we lost the one upset in Sanford Stadium last year, it was a truly unexpected, not team that was rolling like this in South Carolina. Georgia's lost one game in, at home in three years. That was it. So we usually get up at home. We're usually well-prepared. Knowing these guys on the other side, and knowing the type of coaching job that they're going to do and their will to win, Kirby is not going to let our guys be anything but ready. I'll take Georgia 30, Tennessee 20. I mean, I got to say, after getting uh, having to uh, eat some crow after my last week's take, I got to say, I, I think Georgia's coming out with this in a, in a huge win. I, I think it's Tennessee's first test against, you know, they had the longest win streak in the SEC right now, but they haven't played right. a team like this. I think Georgia comes away not even close. Very comfortably, very comfortably. And I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because um, two factors that that brings to mind. Uh, two topics, real quick ones. Um, number one is Tennessee's schedule is traditionally always back load. I'm sorry, front loaded. All their hard games are in the beginning of the year. They usually come out, y'all, play Florida, play Georgia, play Bama, and then glide. No, or do whatever they do. They used to win like two of two out of three of those. They used to always beat Tennessee and beat Georgia. Because Tennessee, Alabama was way down. Florida, they couldn't get past, but they'd beat Georgia. And they actually beat us nine times straight over 11 years. Then Jim Donnan broke through. I touched the goalpost, was a season ticket holder fresh out. But they out of- haven't been good in the last, in the, in the last you no, know, the they last decade, decade. They haven't. They haven't been good. And I've got to imagine that Georgia's come out on top most of the time there. But they're coming. They're trying to rebuild this program. So 
This game is huge for them, probably bigger than it is for Georgia, but with Bama knocking in week, you know, in week four, it's 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 a huge game for both, and that's what makes this so fun. I, I do think that that Georgia's going to cruise in this one, but I mean, geez, I couldn't have been more wrong last week. So, <laughs> um, I uh, remember a lot of moments where we've been sitting in this situation where Georgia is really riding high, coming off a big win, especially off a big home win, and everyone in Athens is patting them on the back. It doesn't necessarily breed the best focus. Right. So when Georgia's been upset, it's been like they're rolling, and the next week they'll have a little hiccup. That's why just yeah. in history. So that's something to safeguard. Sure. Against. And and it's, that's why you. It's in one hand, it's like obviously a, an enormous game, but you can use the word trap because you're favored and you're yeah. worried that it that the that they're going to have a little bit of a hangover here. Anyway, I hope in the only trap is the volunteer trap, Sam. Yep. And I hope them dogs get them. That next one's looking pretty scary, obviously. The capstone of Alabama. We are on a two-game winning streak at Alabama. Interesting. Although we've lost five in a row to them. So that's coming up pretty quick. We are going to dive fully into that next week. Dive into the full Bama thing because that needs, you know, probably a two-hour special. But we have a nice little treat here today. We have Jordan Arvayo, uh, who has her master's in epidemiology from Harvard and is currently getting her PhD, just to talk with us a little bit about the state of the pandemic in college football. Thanks for coming on, Jordan. No problem. Thanks for having me. So the first question I kind of have for you is just, what do you think of, of what the SEC has kind of laid out in, in terms of guidelines? Um, they, they move into the week three of their schedule now. Uh, well, week four, yeah, no, week three of their schedule. And, you know, are they kind of, you know, what, what do you, what do you see that you think is effective and, and what do you see that you think is kind of ambiguous? Yeah. So first of all, I want to recognize the SEC for honoring the scholarships of the student athletes who chose not to participate Uh, in their sport during the fall 2020 academic semester. I think that's the first step in letting your community know that COVID-19 is very serious. It's a very serious threat that not everyone can ignore. And so I hope they continue to support their students and all of their uh, student athletes throughout the 2021 academic year as well, seeing as the epidemic is not likely to fade out come January. But as far as the SEC guidelines go, there is no formal way to evaluate how the proposed safety measures affect the health of their student athletes. The efficacy of the policies and protocols depend on dozens of varying factors like behavior of athletes on and off the field, the behavior of those athletes, friends and families, their opinions about coronavirus, their socioeconomic status, access to information, the list goes on and on, and it's a very, very long list. But what we can look at is the severity of the guidelines compared to what other parts of the country are doing. So I've read through the SEC's COVID-19 management plan. It was updated on October 2nd, and it's very interesting. The task force that created this plan, they're very smart people. We have like six physicians who are mostly versed in sports medicine the Dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M, and they have two or three infectious disease experts, which is fantastic. Their testing protocol seems fine. They're like, hey, we're gonna test you often. We're gonna use the best tests available. And if a better test comes out, 
or if we find that there were mistakes in the testing protocol, we'll test everyone again. They're very generous. They're not shy with their testing, which is great. Uh, so the interesting part is once someone tests positive, the SEC tells the teams that they need to monitor their players um, as far as cardiac health goes. So this includes an EKG, an echo, and serum troponin evaluation. There is evidence that COVID affects your heart health, but many other researchers argue that your respiratory health is a better indicator of immediate recovery from COVID-19. So if teams are busy looking at your EKG and ignoring potential damage to your airways, student athletes might be encouraged to get back out on the field before their body is ready, which would lead to short-term rewards like playing in the next game and playing in practices, but long-term respiratory consequences. And to be clear, this is you know just part of the plan that I read um, that I felt that was really odd. The rest of their plan seems sound. Again, they have really, really great people on their task force coming up with this plan. And I have no doubt that they're concerned about the health of their players. I'm sure that you know they had their own debate about recovery management. Well, as you kind of pointed to earlier, like the in terms of science, my understanding is that all of things are all determinations are based on you know, data, uh, journals, all things that are, that are, and things that are published and that they're completely vetted in, in, in terms of the data behind it. Um, and, and you've also pointed out that there is not a ton of data to, to, to know with a certainty the effectiveness of some of this stuff. And, and if I were to bet why there's a stress on the cardiac element, is because of, I think, right around the time when the guidelines were beginning to be formed, there was new kind of information that there may be a cardiac effect of COVID, which is, I think, kind of believed by that as certainly possible. Um, and so they may have they, they may have put an emphasis on that just just due to that. But as you're pointing out, there's there's many many factors that are not only unknown but risk factors that that seem to be present. Um, including long-term respiratory issues. So that is very interesting. You, you mentioned the testing, and I know that, that, that as part of the guidelines here, we have uh, what are uh, PCR tests administered two times a week. Um, talk a little bit about that testing, and I know that that is different, different than the, the, the rapid testing that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are going to administer, and, uh, and kind of talk about the pros and cons between the two, the two groups of tests. That, that the conferences are utilizing. Sure, yeah, so the PCR tests are tests that can be administered using nasal swabs or throat swabs. And what we do is we take a small tissue sample and we run it through molecular tests that look for genetic material that only comes from the virus. Unfortunately, as of September 5th, I understand that the false negative rate of the PCR test is anywhere from 2% to 37%. So that just means if we had 100 people that we knew were affected and we gave them this PCR test, anywhere from two to 37 of them would get an incorrect test result telling them that they did not have COVID when they actually did. The false mm. positive rate is less concerning, but that is anywhere from zero to 17%. So someone thinks they have COVID when they actually don't. Right. And there's less data on the false positives because that is, you know, you're less concerned about someone in terms of just in a vacuum, a human being trying to be safe and trying to be healthy, you're less concerned about them quarantining for 14 days when they don't need to. But in the context of college football, a false positive 
maybe more impactful in terms of that player's career, that team's ability to play, and all the ramifications, including broadcast time, money, et cetera. Right. All of the researchers right now are just concerned with curving all of the infection that we're seeing and, you know, not too interested in what happens if we quarantine when we're not supposed to be quarantining. You're more concerned about false negatives, someone having COVID and being told they don't, than you are about telling someone they have COVID when they actually don't. Um, The rapid testing uh, antigen test that has moved the needle in the Big Ten's return to play uh, talk a little bit about that and 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 how that differs from what we're looking at in terms of uh, the PCR test the SEC has implemented. Right. So this antigen test looks for proteins from the virus, while the PCR test looks for genetic materials from the virus. And the false negative rate associated with the antigen test is higher. On average, it's about 50% with a range of 34 to 80%. So that's why the FDA is not a huge fan of these tests. But these tests are sometimes preferred because they are much cheaper and require simpler technology to process the results. Interesting. So it, while the Big Ten is kind of pointing out that they that this moved the needle in the sense that they could kind of do things in a safer way with this, with this rapid testing, it seems like there may be a little bit of more room for error. However... The, I do think an important part of the rapid test is that it is that just that rapid. So in terms of contact tracing with a team, like and kind of as you have pointed out, there's so many variables here. While there may be a little bit more margin for error in terms of antigen testing versus looking for genetic material, um, you're also getting the results back faster. So if there was, if the tests are accurate, you're able to contact trace that within the teams quicker. Right. And so we also have to remember that these tests haven't existed for a very long time. So all of the data we're getting to determine the sensitivity and the specificity of these tests is all dependent on data that we've gathered quickly and data that we are kind of scrambling to get just so that we can produce some sort of result. It's based on limited data. When you only have something happen for six months, the amount of data you could have is inherently limited. You're absolutely right. So that being said, another thing that the the SEC is kind of touting is, is as an interesting um, an interesting new piece of technology that they seem to be excited about and 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 believe is very cutting edge um, is the Nixion Safe Zone technology. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and and what and and what you think it will do in terms of of helping the SEC track this and prevent? Yeah, so the five founders of the safe zone technology seem to know what they're doing, right? So one got his MBA at Harvard Business School. Two of them attended a great technology institute in Germany. But to be honest, I can't really speak about the efficacy of the safe zone technology. I know that their goal is to reduce the incidence of COVID-19 through contact tracing, but no one has really looked into how being an athlete and wearing one on the field is keeping you safe from COVID. We just don't know yet. Obviously, this strategy might be better for soccer players who have lots of space on the field and don't usually huddle around together, but we just aren't sure. They have all of the data on that and uh, researchers from outside companies have yet to see it. And what is involved in it? My understanding is there's like a GPS involved and a heart monitor or something and like lots lots of bells and whistles. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's kind of like a mix 
between a GPS, a heart monitor, a temperature monitor. They monitor where the players are on the field, how long they stay in that area compared to, you know, other monitors. And then what I'm assuming will happen is that they'll take that information and then illustrate some type of association between the movement of the, of the players on the field who acquired COVID and maybe past COVID compared to those who did not, but I'm not too sure. That is interesting. And yeah, it's, it's hard to know, I think, for people in your field because this is a private company. So the data, as, you've, as, as you have stated, that is uh, integral to the field of epidemiology and being able to determine scientific determinations about this virus is not really available to the public in terms of the Nixion technology, but it does sound expensive either way. It does. <laughs> it's very expensive. Um, <laughs> so as we kind of uh, move to fall, and, and, and I hate to, to spend a ton of time focused on the contrast between the Big Ten and the SEC and the way they've approached it, we've approached it, but that's kind of all we have to go off of in terms of, you know, what is one way to handle going back to college football and another. Um, as we go deeper into fall, now the Big Ten is set to return in, in late October, the Pac-12 is starting in, in November, and there's a lot of discussion in terms of this virus and concern um, over the colder months of the year and the flu season, et cetera. Now, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have kind of been known to, to try, at least to, to seem in at face value, is as more precautious than the other conferences. Is, is there a greater risk to coming back that late into the fall versus the the SEC or, or any conference or any sport starting a little earlier and having more room to wiggle in terms of the weeks that they're playing uh, that they, the SEC, for example, has given a couple weeks in terms of its ability to reschedule. And in case there's an, like a team that catches it, et cetera. Whereas like the big 10 is kind of strapped to the schedule they have that is all centered around the late fall and, and winter months. Yes, I think that depends on the current and future responses of the SEC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12. The SEC is currently playing a role in maintaining the pandemic. Most of us are. Anyone who leaves their house without perfect protection and perfect precautionary measures are contributing to the maintenance of a pandemic. Some contribute to the pandemic more than others. The SEC is not the villain here, but compared to other football organizations, it plays a greater role in slowing the containment of the virus. And that's just a statistical statement. It's not an opinion. And again, you know, SEC makes these decisions for the sake of their college football communities, right? They maintain the health and happiness of their communities. So maybe these communities that are in the SEC are currently healthier because they're happier, but we won't know. From a public health standpoint, outside of the virus, they may be improving it. It's hard to, to say about any of this, but to a degree of how many fans you have versus not having fans, which is another contrast between the Big Ten and the SEC. SEC having fans where the Big Ten will have none. Um, the, these things do have an impact in the not only the, the virus itself and the spread in the communities, but just in its ability to continue the season. And, and I think that's going to be remain to play out here. We're about three weeks into this season with the, with big 10 and pac 12 yet to start. Um, I know that there's been incidents um, across the league. The Notre Dame has had to postpone 
Uh, I think the first four weeks of Houston season just couldn't have an opponent because they're all the the players had viruses had, had the virus and it's 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 going to be interesting to see how it plays out because as, as I think the biggest thing to take away from this is how little is known. Everyone's kind of putting and and dealing from up from the rough, I guess you could say <laughs> that that you that it's impossible to know. It's but everybody's doing their best not only to manage the the virus and the spread of the virus, but to manage their own public health in every community. Yeah, that's right. We're in a really special time right now because this virus is new and it's going to take lots of time and lots of money to truly understand how COVID is affecting our lives and understand the quality of our decisions. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure everybody else did. Um, It's been educational. The more you know. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, we will be back next week with uh, the recap of what happens in Tennessee versus Georgia. And we will preview the, probably the biggest game of the year, uh, or at least the biggest game of the regular season in Georgia football and probably the SEC, the Bulldogs versus the Crimson Tide. Thanks for listening. When you beat the Georgia Bulldogs, you're going to feel the Bulldog bite.